I'm Timothy Putnam, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week we gather right here to explore the foundations of our faith, to look at the implications of our faith on our daily lives, so that together, you and I can prepare to live outside the walls. Well, it's here again. <laughs> every year, every year it comes back. It's this little season uh, of immediate dread as I approach my birthday. <laughs> That's right. Uh, it's going to be my birthday on the 17th, this coming Wednesday. Uh, I will be nearly 40. Not yet 40. 39. I have I have arrived. Uh, and, you know, it's that looming thing out there uh, of going, oh, my gosh. I'm probably, at the rate uh, that I am taking care of myself, I'm middle-aged, right? Uh, this I am, I'm halfway through. How am I doing in this race? What's my pace? Uh, how am I uh, r- relating to people around me? How am I treating my children? How, you know, all of these questions of evaluation, uh, they come and, and you have to look at them and say, okay, are, are we doing okay? Are we... Uh, are we making it? And uh, so far, uh, I'll let you know later how, how I do on that test. Uh, so th- this season is really kind of a, a an ambivalent season, not just because of uh, the birthday, although some of you out there love birthdays, some of you out there uh, understand with me a little bit of the complexities. But it's not just that. There's a lot going on right here in this week. Uh, the feast day of St. Maximilian Kolbe is upon us. Uh, the, the feast day of the Assumption of Mary is upon us. And if you still have questions about that, last year, uh, about a year ago exactly, we did this episode on the Assumption with, with Tim Staples of Catholic Answers. You can get that in the archives over at OutsideTheWalls.com. Uh, so we're not really going to uh, deal with that today. Although when we get to the reading uh, from Scripture, I'm going to jump all the way to that feast day. We're going to we're going to read the Magnificat together, just as a really strong reminder of God's preferential option for the poor and the outcast. Uh, just a, a beautiful passage there uh, from Mary's proclamation after hearing. Uh, the Annunciation that she was going to bear Christ the Son. So uh, we'll get to that later. But um, in the midst of this, we've got my birthday. We've got St. Maximilian Kolbe's feast day, who is my patron saint, uh, my confirmation saint. We have the the uh, an- the Assumption of Mary uh, right here at that same time. And then also uh, we have the passing on that same day on the Assumption, the passing of a very dear friend of mine. This will mark the sixth year uh Remembrance. It's it's an anniversary, but it's not uh, not not that kind of celebration. Uh, the the anniversary of his passing. Uh, his name was Andrew Deaver, and he was one of the reasons, one of the people who was an influence in my life as I was journeying towards the church. I didn't really even understand that I was journeying towards the church as I uh, interacted with him, but he was a young man who. Uh, against all odds, you know, raised in the Protestant church and somehow just knew that he wanted to be a priest. And when he became Catholic, he became Catholic knowing that he wanted to be a priest. He felt so strongly that call into the vocational ministry. And, uh, and I, I tear up a little bit just even thinking about him because he was someone who embodied what we're going to talk about today. He embodied it so well. 
Uh, we're going to be talking later in the show with Rebecca Bratton Weiss. She's a Pathios blogger and a, and a lecturer at uh, the Steubenville, uh, Franciscan University in Steubenville. And she's going to be talking to us about a blog post she wrote called The Politics of Not Unfriending. And this idea of living with conflict, living with, uh, with disagreement, and, and not, necess- not jumping to that place of saying, well, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm, I'm just going to cut this conversation off because you're so obviously wrong, right? Uh, Andrew Deaver was a, a guy who um, I would go over to the house where he was living. And he wasn't even the, the person that I knew there, but uh, eventually we became uh, very good friends. Uh, I, I would go over to that house and it was a house where people would just gather and it was a lot of hospitality. They would just gather to talk. Uh, it was kind of the, the quintessential, uh, apartment from friends, right? Everyone would just kind of gather there. And he was a person, uh, who would just listen to any opinion. He would listen to any person, no matter where you were or really how wrong you were, how far into heresy you might be. And he had compassion. He would sit there and he would do his best to identify with you. And he would say, that's, that's very interesting. Here's my experience. Uh, and he would then just show the beauty of truth and the beauty of Catholicism just by sharing his own experience in a very non-threatening way. Uh, it wasn't a debate. It wasn't an argument. It was a sharing of person. And I, I, to this day, I appreciate that so much uh, about, about this man. So he went through minor seminary. He went to Conception uh, Seminary in Missouri. And um, in between, he was going to do a pastoral year in between uh, minor seminary and major seminary. And in that time, uh, I went to a Matt Marr concert and I saw him. And I wasn't expecting him to be there, but there he was. And I saw him and uh, we embraced and we talked and we uh, enjoyed a little bit of life together that night. And he introduced me to some of my, still to this day, favorite priests, Father Kerry Wakulich out in the uh, Diocese of Tulsa, who's now at uh, Stillwater, if you are an OSU fan. Uh, he's, the, he's the priest there now. He introduced me to that, that priest that night and really helped establish some solid friendships. And then uh, a couple of days later, I, I got the news that he passed, and, and it was just uh, a horrific um, gut blow. Uh, you know, just felt like somebody punched me in the gut because I just saw him. And, and it w- does a couple of things. One, it shows me the importance of making every moment count because you never know. You just never know when uh, your life will be required of you. Two, it, it reminds me the importance of charity uh, because this person just from the sheer act of being a very charitable person all the time. Uh, he has now impacted the lives of, of countless others uh, and is remembered with great, great fondness. And so every year as we approach August 15th, um, I pull out the picture I was given of him. And uh, I, uh, I, was, I was also given his pics from when he was in seminary. And it's just a, a dear, very uh, cherished uh, possession. Um, it reminds me of the importance of being charitable, of carrying the presence of God to everyone I meet, whether whether I am doing so uh, in a in a capacity of being an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion, or or whether it is truly carrying the presence of Christ just with me where I go when I go out to eat, when I go with my family, wherever it is. 
that like Andrew Deaver, uh, I carry that presence of God with me as a, as a light, right? Uh, to, to let the light shine, to be uh, the salt of the world and the light of the world. Uh, man, just what an important thing to remember. And, and, you know, we hear that, and we'll hear that a little bit later, but it's also important to have that person that exemplifies it, that can draw you on to be better. For me, that person's Andrew Deaver. Uh, there are other people probably as well, but he is before the throne of God interceding for me as I strive. Oh my gosh, I strive to uh, to be that. And if he's not yet before the throne of God, I'm interceding for him, right? We all have our our needs to be purified. We all have that these things that, uh, that weigh us down. Uh, and I, I'm going to guess he had those as well. I don't understand how purgatory works. We did have an episode on that. I don't know if it's an instant. I don't know if there's time involved. What I know is that God who began a good work in Andrew Deaver and who, uh, who used him as such a light to the whole world, I know that he will be faithful to bring it to completion in him. And so as much as I can be certain of anything, I have such hope uh, for him in the kingdom of God. I, I I ask for his intercessions, and I look forward to the day that maybe I can call him, you know, Saint Padre. He was never a Padre, but I called him Padre, right? He he didn't make it to the ordination, and yet he did shepherd uh, so many people under his care. Uh, and so I, I just, today, as you are, uh, as you're listening to the rest of the show, as you are doing whatever it is, whatever task you're doing, do me a favor. Uh, offer that prayer for Andrew Deaver. Uh, or the one that the Andrew in your life, whoever that is, um, because one, the church needs our prayers. The church, those people who are in purgatory, all the holy souls in purgatory, they need our prayers, uh, and that's a that's an that's a whole topic for another day that we don't have to get into, have time to get into, um, and two. Uh, ask for the prayers of all those who are in heaven, who have gone before us, who have set that example, that great cloud of witnesses. Ask for their prayers to help you be more charitable, to help you embody these these gospel qualities and virtues more fully. Uh, and so that's my story. That's my story today. That's kind of what's uh, weighing on my my heart and my mind today is my memory of my friend who passed on August 15th Andrew Deaver, and gosh, what what an amazing person he was! How surprised he would be to see that I became a Catholic. <laughs> How thrilled he would be to see that I became a Catholic because I was nowhere near at the time. Uh, so pray for pray for his family. Always, the loss of a, of a family member is difficult. Pray for his family. Pray for Andrew Deaver, and ask for the prayers of the saints that you could have that kind of impact. We'll be right back. We'll talk with Rebecca Bratton-Weiss about her blog post, The Politics of Not Unfriending. Join our conversation on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle is at outside the walls. I want to know what you think. We'll be right back after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam. Welcome back to Outside the Walls. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. Thanks for sticking through the break. 
Oh, well, we've got a great show today. We're going to be talking about not unfriending that annoying person on Facebook. You know, you've done it. You know you have. They, they say one too many things. They post one too many controversial memes, especially this time of the year. And that, that unfriend, unfollow button is so easy to find. Uh, I've done it. And uh, recently, I came across a piece on the Pathios Network uh, by Rebecca Bratton Weiss called The Politics of Not Unfriending. And I tell you, I was intrigued. Uh, and so I read through it, and, and it was good enough that I figured we would share it here today. So we've invited Rebecca on the show today. Thanks for being here today, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. So you are a lecturer in English literature and philosophy at Franciscan University. Uh, and uh, you, in, when you're not doing that, you are busy uh, connecting with the earth. We've talked on this show several times about localism. Uh, so you, you have a, a, a farm that you farm and you, you've... Uh, You've got horses, you've ridden horses, you've, you've uh, given people instruction on how to ride horses. Uh, and so you just have this, this very strong connection, really. It's a, a Laudato Sea kind of lifestyle. Yes, <clears throat> yes, very much so. I grew up that way. And oh, once you get your roots down into the soil, uh, they don't pull up very easily, even if you spend a lot of time in the city. I had Na- so, yeah, I, I had Nandina in my front yard, and it was that way too. You know, once the roots mm. were, you weren't going to get that out. It was yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's let's talk. You uh, you blog on the Pathios Network on a blog called Suspended in Her Jar. Uh, let's talk a little bit just about what that means. What where did that that phrase come from? Uh, this is me being a complete literary geek because it's from the epigraph to T. S. Eliot. The Wasteland, which is from the Satyricon by Petronius, um, and the uh, line suspended in her jar is a translation from the Latin in which uh, they speak of going to consult the Sibyl at Cumae. And of course, the Sibyl, um, she is one of these classic cases of someone who um, was the victim of being loved by the gods. Hmm. Um because the god Apollo asked for her to have immortality, but being kind of forgetful, forgot to ask for her to have uh, undying youth. So she got older and older and older and more decrepit until she's finally falling apart and has to be kept in a jar so she doesn't just disintegrate. And so this image of this woman being kept in a jar so she doesn't... uh, float away on the wind while small boys come up and ask her questions, I thought was very compelling, uh, kind of from a feminist perspective, as an image of the way in which uh, women were both revered and reviled in our uh, glorious Western tradition, which I love, our glorious Western tradition. Uh, So also, it's when you're ever feeling like you're having a really bad day, it's easy to describe that by saying, I feel like the Sybil suspended in her jar. Yeah. Wonderful. So, uh, you, uh, you have a very wonderful take on, and I, I love following you on Facebook specifically during the Olympics. I've, I've, my eyes have been opened because you have this way of pointing out some of the ways that our culture does not appreciate women. Uh, some of the, the, really the ways that are so ingrained that a lot of us just overlook entirely. Uh, and so, 
for if you're looking for really good commentary, go to her blog, follow her on Facebook, Rebecca Bratton Weiss, suspended in her jar on the Pathios Network. Uh, I put her right up there along uh, Pia Del Salini and, and many others who just have a, a wonderful way of presenting this just very important redirection of our understanding of the way the world works. So speaking of redirecting my understanding of the way the world works, uh, let's talk about this this blog post you wrote, uh, The Politics of Not Unfriending. Uh, you, you have this idea that if I simply unfriend you, then all I'm doing is creating an echo chamber where I only hear the things I want to hear. Uh, talk about what well, let's get right down to it. Talk about the, the the meme or the status that someone posted that precipitated a lengthy blog post. Oh, goodness. Uh, it's often memes making fun of feminists mm-hmm. um, because there's just such a stereotypical view of us that, uh, first of all, we're ugly, we're out of shape, uh, we wear horrible clothing, and um, we're out to destroy the family, which mm-hmm. is ludicrous since many of us have families. Uh, but also what really uh, gets me riled up the most is anything that has racist content. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes I just get this kind of like gut reaction. I want to punch something. <laughs> and often people don't intend to be racist at all. No one ever intends to be racist. Uh, But things in which um, it's insinuated that people who support Black Lives Matter are uh, themselves racist Mm -hmm. or they're all lazy and unemployed. And that sort of thing, I often feel like I can't even begin to address um, the person who's posted it because I'm on the verge of having a temper tantrum. So sometimes I step back and... I think about it and I decide to blog on it instead, uh, which allows me to post something. I guess it's vague booking, but I'm not directly addressing the person who annoyed me. I'm just kind of putting it out there that, um, uh, that a lot of people were making excuses in uh, that uh, swimmer's rape case right. uh, earlier this year and basically saying that it was her fault and he had this great uh, future ahead of him. And I was really surprised to see so many Catholics making excuses for what was a, a really horrible action. You know, obviously forgiveness is important. Mercy is important, but mercy and forgiveness have to come after recognizing fault. So I got irritated. I didn't yeah. unfriend anyone. I just wrote a blog post. Well, you know, and you bring up an, an important point there that we have this idea that forgiveness precludes justice. Uh, right, and it you know there was a something that Pope Francis said probably in the last three months. He said uh, we need to come to the the realization that the opposite of forgiveness uh, isn't isn't justice; it's vengeance. Hmm. Yes, that yes. that vengeance belongs to God, but we still have that responsibility to seek justice. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about. What does that look like? Okay, we've backed down off of our our trigger of clicking that unfriend button. Uh, Mm -hmm. Not all of us have blogs. So what do we do to begin recognizing that, okay, uh, if I I click that unfriend, two things have happened. One, now you have one less influence in your life uh, to hear the truth, and I have one less... uh, 
uh, one less piece of realism of the world around me to be able to understand mm-hmm. the culture. So right. where do I go from here? Well, I think um, one of the problems with social networking, well, I mean, it's also a bonus. You can immediately uh, click on someone's profile and find out all kinds of things about what they like and dislike. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I see someone is making fun of contemporary country music, I'm like, oh, this is a person I can hang out with. <laughs> uh, it, I can check and see which politicians they like and dislike. Uh, I can see which memes they post. And you don't find that when you meet someone in daily life. It often takes a long time before you figure out what they believe. And sometimes when you find out what they believe, it's a little shattering and you realize I can't be friends with this person. This person is anti-Semitic. Um, so it allows you to kind of um, carefully categorize your friends list and know who you want to spend time with. But the downside is you forget that human beings are individual persons with very complex characters. And often what we believe is what we were told to believe. So if I remember long ago, uh, I met someone who was very friendly and nice. He was an excellent cook, friendly guy, funny guy. And then I found out he was a racist. And he, uh, I'm Jewish on my mother's side, and he made the comment that I was uh, attractive for a Jew. <laughs> and wow. that was, he intended it to be a compliment, which was hilarious. And from his standpoint, I'm sure uh, he was making this huge leap of trying to see me um, as an attractive woman, which isn't much of a leap. But still, um, <laughs> what happens in moments like that I think there's two temptations. One is to decide that your friend couldn't possibly be a racist or that racism doesn't matter. And I think that happens a lot. Mm -hmm. I think that's why people make excuses for uh, sexism, racism, various forms of bigotry, because they think that they're protecting their friends. Um, And that's not good. But the other temptation is to just decide that this entire person is summed up by this one noxious belief. Instead of realizing that what you already knew about that person, that the person was kind at times, that the person was a good cook. This is also part of who that person is. Good literature does this. In good literature, you read about characters who are sometimes completely awful and and you hate them and you want them to die. And then all of a sudden they do something else and you're surprised by the capacity for nobility. And I think we need to – we can – approach characters like that in books when we're reading well. And I think maybe we need to approach real human beings like that more often. Yeah. So not unfriending, but instead starting conversations about other things like growing tomatoes. Growing tomatoes is a good one at this time of year. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, we're going to come back and talk about this a little bit more just on the other side of the break. Don't unfriend us. No, on the contrary, start a conversation over at facebook.com slash step outside the walls on Twitter. The handle is at outside the walls. Talk about a time that you have just really, really wanted to unfriend a person. Uh, Tell me about, the meme that they posted and what sets you off. I want to hear from you. We'll be right back after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. Thanks for sticking around. Well, during the break, I hope you went over over to Facebook and and started that conversation. Let me know what uh, one of those times that you were just really, really tempted to hit that unfriend button. Maybe you were really tempted and you didn't resist that temptation. Tell me about that too. Uh, Change names to protect the innocent. That's all right. Uh, We're talking today with Rebecca Bratton-Weiss. She is a uh, lecturer at Franciscan University of Steubenville, uh, a a blogger at the Pathios Network. Her blog is suspended in her jar. Uh, And a, a farmer somewhere in the wilds of, I'm assuming, Ohio, Right. Yes, Ohio. Since you lecture at Steubenville, I figured, yeah, unless you just, <laughs> it, it wouldn't make sense for you to, you know, take a private jet back and forth when you're, no, couldn't afford it. When you're a farmer. Uh, so we're talking about the politics of not unfriending. And you talked about the difference between social media and just meeting someone on the street. And something else uh, that I perceive as a difference between those two mediums is in social media, it, we have this idea that we have to post every one of us, everyone from the the biggest media personality who everyone knows, uh, down to the first, uh, the thirteen year old with their first profile. We have to post some compelling meme uh, or opinion or phrase that's going to get people to like us, to click off some endorphin in in our mind for approval, uh, and so. Now, all of a sudden, life is made up of a series of compelling statements that we adhere to with certain levels of of, uh, ferocity, as opposed to allowing conversation to happen. A lot of times, actually, we shut down conversation in social media, where in, in the realm of sitting down over coffee, we really engage in conversation. And so... Really, social media is is unsocial in that it doesn't really uh, mimic the social behavior of any of us uh, during the day in our in our actual unplugged lives. Yes, um, the use of memes is fascinating because we're already dealing with problems of semiotics, just discoursing with language. Mm-hmm. And the difficulty of finding the words that we want to use and the, the way that a, a word may change over time so it no longer means what you wanted it to mean. Oh, and then putting it into the written word, you're losing that uh, thing that Derrida spoke of as the illusion of presence, uh, which perhaps is an illusion anyway. Uh, but then you've got a meme, and the meme quite often portrays another person saying something. So you've interjected this kind of... Uh, third text, really, in between you and the person you're trying to communicate with, and you've interjected a a fictional character to say things for you. And I think that creates a kind of buffer zone, which may be uh, nice sometimes, because we don't want to put ourselves out there and be vulnerable, but it also means we're not really speaking Mm -hmm. face-to-face. It's hard to find uh, venues for speaking face-to-face anymore. I think that's one reason why people turn to social networking so much. There are are no literary salons to go to where we can have erudite conversation over cocktails. There's something very human about this need we have to be noticed and to be seen, to be acknowledged, to have our opinions out there, whether we're professional academics or just teenagers 
trying to make a splash. And so I'm sympathetic to the need to post memes, even inflammatory ones. And I do it myself, of course. But I think that we need to remember this is not an adequate substitute for meeting face-to-face mm-hmm. because we are embodied beings. Well, and face-to-face, but even let's let's say we are involved in a conversation like we are right now over the phone, uh, there's yes. still a sense of, um, of person there, mm-hmm. uh, of interacting and exchanging ideas beyond a singular idea uh, that then you just wait for the emotions to rise on one side or the other to, to, to move the intellect and not move the emotions through our conversations. Yes. Oh, and I think, uh, one of the fundamental questions you ask in classical rhetoric is, you know, um, what is the end I'm trying to achieve is the end that you're trying to achieve to just make someone shut up Mm -hmm. or to make them angry? Or do you want them truly to see what it is that you see? Oh, and if you want them to see that, you have to kind of invite them into your space, and no one's going to want to come into your space if you're just being rude. So oh, if you think of your, your social networking space as kind of like a room in your house, oh, you imagine how you would want to welcome people in and say, you know, here, take a look at the books on my bookshelf. Would you like a drink? And similarly, you don't go barging into someone else's house shouting at them. <laughs> oh. Old-fashioned politeness can make a world of difference. And speaking from the heart. We're talking with Rebecca Bratton-Weiss. She blogs on the Pathios Network at Suspended in Her Jar. Now, um, uh, you know, we, we have a couple of systemic problems, I think. We, we have become an insular society where we are very keen on expressing our ideas in the small social constructs that we have, but we're, we're cautious about expressing those things in the public square, in, in a coffee shop. But our culture is not no longer set up for that. Uh, part of that, I think, is uh, we've done such a good job in, our, uh, in, in a negative way, done such a good job of shutting down dissident thought and conversations uh, politically or just using um, shame as a means to shut down our opponents rather than dialogue. Yes, and this is uh, especially worrying uh, in the academy because traditionally the university was a place where uh, intelligent disagreement was actually a sign of respect. It means you're taking time to take a person's view seriously if you disagree with it. And there's a way of going about that. There's a correct way to disagree with someone which says, I still view you as a person. I just Mm -hmm. think you're wrong. (laughs) And we seem to be losing that. So conversations about politics or religion or sexuality very quickly resolve into ad hominem and just shouting. And I think that's very unfortunate. We need to be able to learn modes of discourse that allow us to sit in a room with someone with whom we disagree and explain to each other what we think without getting too worked up about it. Well, I think that we're uh, so many times either either we or our interlocutor uh, have this idea of well, I don't want to hear that argument, and so I'm going to shut that down in in one yeah. of three very uh, decisive ways. During the break, you were talking about this whole idea that's come up recently of the trigger warning. Uh, talk yeah. us, talk a little bit about that. Well, triggering is a genuine thing, and it has to do with a uh, response to a past trauma. 
And because I teach controversial literature in my classes, I have to be aware of this. For instance, when I teach uh, Nabokov's Lolita, I have to be aware that this could be very triggering for anyone who had been a victim of sexual abuse in the past. Mm-hmm. And that's something I take seriously. Oh, and I think it's important to protect victims of actual abuse and trauma oh, by keeping trigger warnings in place. But something that militates against this is if all of a sudden everyone claims to be triggered about everything. Oh, so let's say maybe I dated a Thomist at one point in the past and he wasn't very nice to me. And now anytime anyone brings up the philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas, I just get a twitchy feeling. That's not the same as being triggered. Um, that means that I've kind of acquired a prejudice or something annoys me. I have trouble thinking about it rationally. So I think um, while we have an obligation to respect the feelings of those who are saying this triggers me, we also have an obligation to check our own feelings and ask, am I genuinely being triggered or am I just demonstrating an immature lack of control over my emotions? Hmm. And that really shuts down discourse. It's unfortunate. So what, what are your top three steps, uh, just real quick, for initiating true conversation over a controversial issue with someone who you would otherwise unfriend? Uh, first of all, there's that common quotation floating around, no one knows who said it originally, but be kind, everyone you meet is fighting some kind of battle. Mm-hmm. And I try to remember that, and as a writer of fiction, that's important to me because i try to write characters who are very unpleasant and then show their internal conflict. And that makes me realize that they're human and this is what they're up against. So I sometimes actually do little um, fiction writing exercises in my head with people who annoy me. And I try (laughs) to imagine them in a situation where they're experiencing conflict and distress and to remind myself that they're human and that this is what they're up against. And I probably have no clue. Oh, so that's one thing I do. Um, I also try really hard to keep conversations going about things other than whatever is controversial, whether it's gardening or cooking or books that we like. There are so many different ways in which political discourse happens because it's in the public sphere, because it's in the agora, uh, without it being specifically about politics. And lastly, um, I just try to imagine my grandmother, who was a very eccentric Southern belle and who said manners are what makes the world go round. I imagine her looking at me and would she approve of how I'm behaving right now? She wouldn't mind if I had my feet up on the table because she did that. And she wouldn't mind if I smoked in the street because she did that. But I think she would very much mind if I acted deliberately to cause harm to someone. Uh, And that's not even stepping into the whole Christian sphere of of love and forgiveness. That's just kind of a humanistic approach. Thanks, Rebecca, for being on the show today. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. We've been talking today with Rebecca Bratton-Weiss. She is a lecturer at Franciscan University in Steubenville, and she blogs over on the Patheos Network. Her blog is suspended in her jar. I'll be posting the blog that uh, that started this whole conversation off over on our social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle is at outside the walls. Why don't you come over and comment on that? Tell me about a time that you learned something by talking with a person you disagreed with. We'll be right back after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls. I am your host, Timothy Putnam. Oh, so glad you're here. So glad you're here. It is coming right up my birthday, August 17th, this Wednesday. Uh, and I will be 39. I mentioned that at the very beginning. And you, you may be thinking, I know that you are. What can we do? What can we do for our favorite show host on his birthday? Well, I'll tell you. It's really quite easy. You just go right over to breadboxmedia.com and you click on the tab right up at the top that says, become a friend of the show. <sighs> That's right. You, if you become a friend of the show, I will give you presents. That's right. I've got gifts. I've got books. I've got uh, funny content and videos just, just for you for becoming a friend of the show. $10 a month is all it takes. You can give more if you want, but it's not required. $10 a month is all it takes to get you eligible for all that exclusive content and the drawings. Uh, all you got to do is go to Breadbox Media, click the tab, friend of the show, and then fill out the information. Now, uh, I have recently become aware that if you're going to do it on your smartphone, uh, there are a couple of little hiccups here and there, not so much in the way that it works, but in the way that it doesn't shrink. It's not a normal mobile site, so you kind of have to scroll over uh, and click the continue button uh, because it's kind of hiding over on the right-hand side of the website. So, but... If you go on your normal, uh, on your on your desktop, no problemo whatsoever. And for that small uh, small gift, you get enrolled in all those extra things, and I get to put food on my children's table. Yay! Right? That's always exceptionally exciting. So <laughs> uh, that's that's uh, the friend of the show. You can keep up with the archives, obviously, all the time at outsidethewalls.com, uh, and interact with us there. So let's go ahead and get into the other things we wanted to hit today. Uh, it is, we're coming right up on the Feast of the Assumption, the Assumption of Mary. And so I want to go over uh, and read from that day, uh, which is Monday. I want to read to you this beautiful uh, exclamation. It's practically poetry, this beautiful song and ex exclamation that Mary sang uh, she, she said this right after she came to the house of Elizabeth, her cousin, who at that time was pregnant with John the Baptist. And look, we're just going to start there. It's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, and we, we see this. Mary set out and traveled to the hill country in haste to a town of Judah, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the infant leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth filled with the Holy Spirit, cried out in a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how does this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For at the moment the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the infant in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed are you who believed that what was spoken to you by the Lord would be fulfilled. And Mary Mary said this, and oh, how I love this passage. Mary said, My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. From this day, all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He has mercy on those who fear him in every generation. 
He has shown the strength of his arm and has scattered the proud in their conceit. He has cast down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has come to the help of his servant Israel, for he has remembered his promise of mercy, the promise he made to our fathers, to Abraham and his children forever. Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. That reading comes from the Gospel of Luke. We're going to read it on Monday on the solemnity of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, man, I, I, I just get chills every time I read that. And of course, when, we were, when I was doing the, uh, the aspirancy for the diaconate, we sang that every day. And there's actually a beautiful little um, a psalter tone to it that comes from uh, Minerwood Abbey, St. Minerwood Abbey. Uh, but there is uh, this beautiful tone that goes with this, and we sing it every single day as part of the liturgy of the hours. And it's just this exceptional reminder that he has a preference for the poor, for the downtrodden, for the outcast, right? How amazing is that? He's looked with favor on his lowly servant. He has scattered the proud in their conceit. He has cast down the mighty from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. I mean, just, that just if that doesn't get you going, I don't know what will. So let's take a minute now, and we're going we're gonna to backtrack. We're going to talk about being salt and light, uh, salt of the earth and light of the world. Uh, we're going to read a homily uh, on Matthew from St. John Chrysostom. And this is, uh, we're reading this today in, in memory and in honor of my friend Andrew Deaver, who passed away on August 15th, 2010. Uh, and and he really he was a, a big factor in us coming to the in, into the church, and not only that, but even his death was a precipitating factor. It's something that sped up that process uh, as we uh, helped and participated in his wake and in his funeral, and um, just really through that process felt the the urgency and the need to be in the church. He was. Uh, in life and in death, uh, salt of the earth and light of the world. So let's read this together uh, in his memory and his honor. You are the salt of the earth. It is not for your own sake, he says, but for the world's sake that the word is entrusted to you. I am not sending you into two cities only, or ten, or twenty, not to a single nation as I sent the prophets of old, but across land and sea to the whole world. And that world is in a miserable state. For when he says, you are the salt of the earth, he is indicating that all mankind had lost its savor and had been corrupted by sin. Therefore, he requires of these men those virtues which are especially useful and even necessary if they are to bear the burdens of many. For the man who is kindly, modest, merciful, and just will not keep his good works to himself, but will see to it that these admirable fountains send out their streams for the good of others. Again, the man who is clean of heart, a peacemaker, and ardent for truth will order his life so as to contribute to the common good. Do not think, he says, that you are destined for easy struggles or unimportant tasks. You are the salt of the earth. What do these words imply? Did the disciples restore what had already turned rotten? Not at all. Salt cannot help what is already corrupted. That is not what they did. But what had first been renewed and freed from corruption, and then turned over to them, they salted and preserved in the newness the Lord had bestowed. 
It took the power of Christ to free men from the corruption caused by sin. It was the task of the apostles through strenuous labor to keep that corruption from returning. Have you noticed how bit by bit Christ shows them to be superior to the prophets? He says they are to be teachers not simply for Palestine, but for the whole world. Do not be surprised then, he says, that I address you apart from the others and involve you in such a dangerous enterprise. Consider the numerous and extensive cities, peoples, and nations I will be sending you to govern. For this reason, I would have you make others prudent, as well as being prudent yourselves. For unless you can do that, you will not be able to sustain even yourselves. If others lose their savor, then your ministry will help them regain it. But if you yourselves suffer that loss, you will drag others down with you. Therefore, the greater the undertakings put into your hands, the more zealous you must be. For this reason, he says, but if the salt becomes tasteless, how can its flavor be restored? It is good for nothing now but to be thrown out and trampled by men's feet. When they hear the words, when they curse you and persecute you and accuse you of every evil, they may be afraid to come forward. Therefore, he says, unless you are prepared for that sort of thing, it is in vain that I have chosen you. Curses shall necessarily be your lot, but they shall not harm you and will simply be a testimony to your constancy. If through fear, however, you fail to show the forcefulness of your, your mission demands, your lot will be much worse, for all will speak evil of you and despise you. That is what being trampled by men's feet means. Then he passed on to a more exalted comparison. You are the light of the world. Once again, of the world. Not of one nation or 20 cities, but of the whole world. The light he means is an intelligible light, far superior to the rays of the sun we see, just as the salt is a spiritual salt. First salt, then light. So that you may learn how profitable sharp words may be and how useful serious doctrine Such teaching holds in check and prevents dissipation. It leads to virtue and sharpens the mind's eye. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under a basket. Here again, he is urging them to a careful manner of life and teaching them to be watchful, for they live under the eyes of all and have the whole world for the arena of their struggles. That reading comes from a sermon on the book of Matthew, by St. John Chrysostom. Are you a light of the world? Are you salt of the earth? Are you living a virtuous life and a life that draws others to the mercy and the strength of Jesus Christ? Or are we going to be trampled by the feet of men? I encourage you, pursue virtue, trust in the mercy of God, and seek in all ways to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thanks for joining me. You can continue this conversation over at facebook.com slash step outside the walls. And on Twitter, the handle is at outside the walls. Outside the walls is a co-production of Breadbox Media and St. Michael Radio heard around the world on live streaming, terrestrial radio and podcast. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.